Attention all units. Attention all units. This is Professor 6-2 with change of condition. Condition of readiness is battle attack. This is not an exercise. I repeat, this is not an exercise. Condition of readiness is battle attack. Alert all batteries. Alert all batteries. Five aircraft, 18 angels, two zero, critical distance, zero, five. Radierevan. This is Radierevan today with Radar. Radar. Also Radar. Funkortung und Abstandsmessung, könnte man sagen. Oder die Abkürzung, the operation for radio detection and ranging. Sometimes they did say in between also radio aircraft detection and ranging, but... Uh, You don't use it anymore, so it is radio detection and ranging. Beside, we would like to define it in a new way, but this is a topic of later in the year. We just follow what it is, radar. Genau, das machen wir heute. Wir, wir schauen einmal, was das jetzt überhaupt ist, die Funkortung und Abstandsmessung. Dazwischen drin haben sie gesagt, das ist eine funkbasierte Flugzeugordnung. Ordnung, Ortung und Abstandsmessung. Das wird aber nicht mehr so genannt, weil mit dem Radar kann man auch ganz andere Sachen messen. Ne? Also man konnte es auch selber basteln und dann kann man messen, wie weit ist der eine Schrank vom anderen weg. Das wäre auch sowas wie Radar. Aber es ist, macht natürlich mehr Spaß und Sinn, wenn man dann merkt, ah, der Schrank bewegt sich auf mich zu. Bevor wir aber weiter da uns in dieses Möbelthema hineinstürzen, kommen wir doch lieber wieder zurück zum Radar. So radio detection ranging and have a look what it is and how you can define it from a technical point of view. Just uh, stay tuned. It's Radierewa. Ja, bleiben Sie dran, bleibt dran. This is the All guns ready for action. Flash, Peter Charlie on target. Fox stand, two, two, three, four, one, eight angels. Fox stand, two, two, three, four, one, eight angels. Two, four, seven, six, eight, four, six, one. Automatically, the course and the range of the unknown skywriters are computed by electronic brains. With their target pinpointed by radar, the gunners are ready to fire accurately, immediately, at the unseen plane. All radar stations are keenly alert, searching the skies to determine the whereabouts of the unidentified planes. Every anti-aircraft operation center in the nation is poised for immediate action. Every detail of the aircraft's behavior will be recorded. Flight path, speed, and altitude all will be portrayed on the radar scope. When the planes pass beyond the reach of an individual station, another radar unit is ready to pick up the trail instantly, giving the quarry no chance to elude the invisible net below. Now, when the unknown intruders swing into view of the radar's electronic eye and appear determined to follow their unauthorized course, the last doubt is gone. This is a full-scale emergency. Luckily, the aircraft sighted over Alaska disappears somewhere over the Pacific. And on the eastern seaboard, the unknowns coming in over Maine are finally properly identified. Several commercial airliners forced far off course by a strong wind. Hello everyone, I'm Monica Kirodivad, Assistant Professor in Vianney International Institute of Engineering and Technology. Uh, uh, I, welcome, I welcome you all on behalf of gurukepia.com and today I am going to deliver my lecture on basically of radar. So basically what is radar? Radar is stands for radio detection and ranging which is uh, used, which was introduced in World War II to detect enemy aircraft. Basically radar is an electromagnetic system which is used to transmit, which is used to detection and detection the range and location of the aircraft and uh, it may work in any weather condition like fog, darkness or rain. Basically radar, radar is a combination of two devices, transmitter and receiver. 
basically uh, in tra transmitter we generate trans uh, signal to transmit the in the environment and uh, here we use a microwave source to generate the transmitted signal like uh, we, we, it may be magnetron reflex klystron and klystron but here we use magnetron to generate microwave signal so uh, this signal is transmitted to the antenna antenna what is antenna antenna is a transducer which is used to convert the electromagnetic signal into electrical signal so antenna transmit the signal in the environment and uh, these signals are all signals are strike on strike on the target this uh, uh, target are uh, reflected back to the signals and these signals are called, called echo signal these all echo signals are collected by the receiver uh, which is which is on the antenna and uh, all the signals are received by the receiver a receiver um, which is used to determine the range and location of the target and here we use we can calculate the range by uh, taking the time travel to the target and uh, again back reflected back to the radar so here we we use a formula to detect the range which is called r bar c t k upon 2 see here c is the velocity of flight and tk time to travel to the target and return back to the receiver Across the country, tension gradually eases. The Army anti-aircraft defense posts slowly unwind from the combat attack status. But the feeling of relief which naturally follows the realization that this has been a false alarm does not breed complacency. radar systems has been an integral part of our initial mission uh, developing an air defense system to protect against a, a polar attack from Russian bombers in the early 50s. But it's also been uh, the development of radar systems has been uh, a major part of many of our programs at the laboratory. Given that, and given that uh, very few courses in radar are available at U.S. universities and have been for decades and decades, the laboratory has been involved in uh, a significant educational program for our staff members to not only keep them abreast of the latest radar technology developments, but to educate new staff members uh, as they come into the laboratory at their different educational levels of the bachelor's, master's, or PhD to introduce them to radar systems and technology. Uh, in 2001, I believe, we realized that a lot of our sponsors could use some of this education too to help them to do their work. And we developed a course that this set of lectures is derivative from. That particular course was an intense three-day course for our sponsors, uh, military officers and government civilians, uh, those involved in the procurement of radar systems and their technical evaluation and their operation. And uh, not only with the Department of Defense, but also with other government agencies that we do work for, like the FAA and NOAA. Uh, and, and so what we did was we put together a course for their level of knowledge that they'd come into the course with. A typical person coming into the course might be a lieutenant colonel, uh, a very smart person, and he or she would have maybe have a master's in business administration. They might have some engineering background, but it might be in chemical or mechanical engineering. They might come from a service academy, where they had a diverse background in education. But many of them would not have, they would have had a college degree certainly, but they wouldn't be as involved in the, the, the formalism and have the advanced degrees that many of us at Lincoln Laboratory have. So we put this course together to teach them the basic concepts of radar and, and the technology and the vocabulary of radar so that when we briefed them and explain to them different areas of radar technology, why one technique was better than another 
for rejecting uh, clutter and seeing targets and, and that sort of thing, or all sorts of things. They'd understand the vocabulary. They know the difference between the beam width and bandwidth, words you'll get to know. And so we put together this course. And uh, this course is, again, three days, very intensive. Now, there's some things that this set of 10 lectures certainly doesn't have. It doesn't have the laboratories. It doesn't have the, the demonstrations, the tours of facilities at the laboratory. And it certainly doesn't have certain lectures on operational military radar systems that our covenants don't allow me to present to this public audience. But this is the core of the basics of what radar is all about. And there are many people uh, uh, outside of the government who asked us to make this course available to them, particularly military contractors. They have many people in their organizations that they felt this would be a useful course for. Not their engineers who are experts in radar, but people who work in support in administrative areas. Um, and likewise, as I look at the potential audience for this course, there are many uh, in diverse fields in America where a very basic course in how radar works would be very useful. Uh, you might be a patent attorney who has come across a patent that involves radar and you'd like to understand the basics of the nomenclature of what's going on there. Uh, it might be you work in the government in the arms control and development agency and your background is in the law. Uh, you might be uh, in, in the automotive industry and radars are being looked at for collision avoidance, small, compact, and expensive radars. You might want to get an understanding of what this technology can and can't do in a general sense. So, the, And that's just the beginning. There are, there are a plethora of people. You might be a civilian air traffic controller. Uh, a civilian pilot who wants to know how the radars work that see and keep them safe. So there are lots of different people that this course will be useful for. And this is a, a first basic cut. We, of course, at the laboratory have an, a series of courses which delve higher and higher into the technology efforts. And if this course is successful, um, I hope to put together the next level up, where this would be the introduction and then there'd be an intermediate, and et cetera, which would uh, be of use to people with need of uh, a deeper intellect, a deeper knowledge, excuse me, of the formalism and the mathematics that goes with this. Okay, first I'm going to introduce uh, the whole subject of radar in the first lecture. In other words, in the first hour we're going to do the whole course very quickly and very lightly. Uh, first I'd like to acknowledge that, um, let's see, about 2000, uh, early, uh, six, seven years ago, I taught a course similar to this for our entering bachelors of science uh, graduates who would come to the laboratory. Did the whole thing myself. Certainly when one would put together a three-day intensive course, you don't want to see uh, 10 or 15 hours of Bob O'Donnell in a row or even interspersed with uh, labs and lectures. So we had a whole series of uh, our best lecturers at the laboratory and experts in these different fields uh, work on my a set of lectures to modify them and, to, and, and make them optimum for this new audience. And here I acknowledge uh, Eric Evans and Andy Gerber who provided the uh, managed support and guidance and overall uh, help in putting this, not help, but guidance in putting this whole course together along with a, a dozen or so of the key people who took my course and we, we all worked together as a team and, and got the visualizations, the view graphs, to be the best way to help augment the words that the lecturer would say to communicate just how radar works. And these people have just been marvelous and I'll probably acknowledge uh, through the different lectures an individual person or two as, they, as their lecture when it's clear that you know, they've been just a major contributor in, in all of this. So if something you don't like, blame me, give them the kudos. Okay, so as I mentioned before, and this is just to recapitulate, it's one of the many courses we have at the radar. Uh, this one, this lecture you'll see, set of lectures, is relatively short, ten lectures. Originally, uh, Dr. Evans and I have given this set of uh, view graphs uh, to 
as a as a six hour tutorial at um, uh, electrical engineering symposia, and I'm going to be taking more time to go over things. That was compressed, where the certain lectures would be a half an hour, certain 45 minutes. It was a time constraint of putting as much as we could in the three days. Uh, that material is pr is going to take longer because I have the uh, the freedom to go over and add more texture uh, to make the course uh, I hope a little more a little less like uh, uh, a marathon and more like uh, a walk in the park uh, easier to digest intellectually but it will be ten lectures uh, we're going to divide the lectures uh, the introduction lecture will probably be broken into two pieces one a half an hour, maybe the other a half an hour, which I'm just going to let the flow go to say the material, take the time, but not make the lectures, each individual piece of a lecture, each quantum, so to speak, uh, more than a half an hour, so that you can watch a half, of a half of the introduction in a half an hour, then the other half in another half an hour. Uh, in terms of the scope, as I said, basic concepts and terminology is what you'll have. We're going to have a minimum of mathematical formalism. And as with all good courses, you tell people what the prerequisite is. And really, it's a college degree. Because if you have a college degree, you've probably, in all probability, you've taken a basic course in the physical sciences, which talks about the very basics of electromagnetism. And also, um, you're going to have taken at least a course in mathematics as part of your general education requirement which you'll have a solid understanding of algebra. And that's about what we're going to start at the ground at the, uh, at the, the ground floor. And the first lecture, to some people, may seem uh, is quite pedantic, but we'll move on. I'd rather start a little lower and go over certain very elementary concepts and build them up rather than miss a bunch of the audience. I already mentioned who the course was for and that we have other more advanced courses at the laboratory that we'll be working about. So this is really the, the, the outline of the three big things we want to go over. It's really two big things because the course agenda is at the very end, and that's just uh, one view graph going over the outline of the agenda. We're going to spend a chunk of time on why people build radars and what they're for in very simple terms. And I'm going to use, you an, use an illustrative example uh, from World War II, when radar was first developed, to show you the impact that radar had in a very major way in the strategic outcome of the Battle of Britain. Wow, you know. And we'll go over uh, the basic concepts of the very basics of, of the flow of a radar and, and what the basic vocabulary is. And then we're going to take apart each piece of the radar later in a lecture and go over it in detail. Okay. What radar is able to do is, so to speak, lift the fog of war. What do I mean by the fog of war? Uh, war is utterly chaotic. Uh, Eisenhower said that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing him, that uh, uh, all planning, is, uh, plans in war are useless, but planning is indispensable. And when he said that first part, that plans are useless, it's because you just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, all of you have probably are watching this have seen either Saving Private Ryan or uh, the HBO series Band of Brothers. Uh, the airborne troops landing God knows where, far away from where they're supposed to. The utter chaos on Omaha Beach supposedly intelligence said it was going to be defended by uh, conscripts from Eastern Europe and at the last minute the Germans had brought in a panzer division uh, a lot of things that were supposed to work didn't uh, going ashore was supposed to be amphibious tanks the waves were high and they all just about sunk there was just an awful lot of uh, unexpected happened and so the ability of not only generals who will run a whole army during that dynamic essence of a war, but the colonels who run their big chunk of it, uh, a brigade or a, or a regiment, 
the lieutenants that run a company, they want to see what's in front of them, know what's there. And radar is able to, to, to wipe away that fog of war. And certainly you can see on the left-hand side in that view graph, that smoke is uh, on the, 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 the banks and the, the, uh, the cliffs of, of Normandy is metaphorical and very vivid of what the fog of war that those brave soldiers were facing when they went ashore at D-Day. And if you go to the Pacific, um, just the, the banging together of uh, the, the, the general that was in charge of Iwo Jima had 21,000 troops on Iwo Jima, and he said a million troops in a thousand years would not be able to take it. Uh, the Allies said, we're going ashore with the usual number, three and a half times that number, and we're going to take it in five days. Well, it took them 25 days and innumerable deaths and heroism, and it was utterly chaotic. Uh, you, could, you could mention uh, time and time again the unexpected, and so often you'd like something to tell you what's ahead of you. Okay, so we have military means of sensing, that is to say, what's out there, electronic systems, and, and, and they can be divided up into electrical, optical, infrared systems, radar, acoustic, and other. And I'm not going to focus on the electro-optics or the acoustic or other sensors, but just on radar and what their functions are. What is it that they can do? They can give you surveillance to tell you, are there targets out there that we should worry about? And you can track them, follow the targets and see where they are direct the uh, uh, interceptors to those targets to knock them down. Use radar to identify the targets. Identify from airborne radars targets on the ground where you can do surveillance, reconnaissance, map where troops are, detect moving targets both in the air and on the ground and in space. Do air traffic control to keep track of your aircraft, whether you're in a uh, certainly in this military environment, but air traffic control radars in the civilian environment, very important. You can also put small radars on missiles to help the missiles seek and find targets. Now what are the attributes that radar has if you had to list? It can see long distances. If I get up on a mountain and I look out in the clearest of days, I can see an aircraft 10-15 miles away maybe, a big jet. Uh, you can see hundreds of miles with a radar. And also you can see in day and night, and you can see in all weather. You can see through weather. Um, you can locate, here we say in three space, that means in both height, angle, and just to know exactly in space, X, Y, and Z, you know, where the target is. And radar is reasonably robust to people trying to uh, countermeasure it. That is, with put adding noise, uh, jamming the radar, as it's called, uh, or dropping so-called chaff to give false targets. It's reasonably robust to handle that. Okay, now I want to go into an example, and this is really history to show how radar made such a, a big difference. Uh, in 1936, uh, Great Britain New War was impending, and it built a series of radars um, at these. 21 locations where you see the dots. And this was called the Chain Home Radar System. Okay? And it was all operational in the summer of 1940 when the Battle of Britain started. And Germany started um, trying to bomb Great Britain into submission. Uh, here we see on the right a, a picture of three of the towers which supported the antennas. This picture was taken uh, uh, about a year ago uh, by a tourist, a Robert Cromwell, and uh, these still stand over on the, uh, by Dover. That, that's the radar site at Dover. Now, the antennas that were part of this radar, uh, none of them exist. And this is a visualization from technical documents that describe the radars on what this radar system was like. It had redundant antennas one on the right and one on the left. And the, and the frequencies 
of the radar were the frequency range that the radar operated in was 20 to 30 million cycles per second that it emitted the pulsed radiation. That's a wavelength that corresponds to 10 to 15 meters, 30 to 45 feet. The, the antennas were quite simple. They were wires, dipole arrays, eight high. And if you look at this particular configuration of antenna, it reminds one uh, it was built at this high frequency because that was the frequency that they could build transmitters in those days. They couldn't build transmitters well. Or they were just starting to, when the war began, build transmitters of smaller wavelengths, which you'll see later imply smaller antennas than these large uh, structures. The azimuth beam was, was about 100 degrees, and it had a peak power of the pulse of energy of about 350 kilowatts. It was later raised to 750 kilowatts. And pulses of energy were sent out about 20 times a second. Excuse me, I think it was about 15 times a second. And the pulse width was about 20 microseconds. And that radar had the ability to detect a German bomber at about 125 to 150. And on one of the papers, it said 160 miles. Okay? And it used one set of antennas to transmit and another set of antennas over here to receive. If we go to the next view graph, here's what those antennas look like in detail. They are steel towers 360 feet high, and uh, a string of dipoles 8 high. And this at these wavelengths, the beam that went out had a big null. The beam went out, and then it had another called a side low, but there was a big empty space. And it had another antenna, uh-oh, which was a set of four dipoles which filled in that null. When we deal with propagation, you'll understand more about this effect of the multipath at, at, at lower frequencies and what it looks like and why it gives you detection issues. We're also going to study in detail antenna structures. The receive antennas were sets of cross dipoles. So this system was able to see way out 160 miles that the Germans were coming with one of their raids. And remember, they were coming at night. Now, the British had about 1,400 fighters, and they were dispersed at many airfields. And with little warning time, if they didn't have this radar system, which gave them great warning, the British would, wouldn't be able to concentrate their limited forces to attack the concentrated German forces coming at them. And so there'd be an unevenness to the defending German fighters protecting their bombers and the British interceptors that wanted to knock them down. The bombers would have got in, dropped their bombs, and got back before the British were able to do much. But with this extra warning time, it allowed the British to get their fighters, their Spitfires, and their Hurricanes off the ground. And that timely warning allowed them to focus their interceptors and achieve numerical parity with the attacking Germans. Why was this all just important? The Germans at this time wanted to invade Great Britain. They knew they couldn't invade Great Britain without air superiority. They didn't have such a great navy relative to the British, and the British had kept theirs in their harbors up in the fjords in Scotland. And if an invasion started to come, they'd bring down their navy and sink the, the invasion barges. So what the British, uh, the uh, Germans had to do was get air superiority. And it turned out, in the Battle of Britain, they could not achieve air superiority. And the reason was is because the chain home system allowed them to concentrate their fighters and wear down the Germans to the point where they said, we just can't do it. It's an interesting anecdote that even though once the Germans attacked the chain home antennas, they never really understood uh, what that these were in a crucial radar system that provided that extra warning for the British. And this really um, allowed the Germans to, well, excuse me, it didn't allow them. It denied them air superiority, and consequently, the invasion of Great Britain was postponed indefinitely. One can just imagine if the Allies did not have 
Great Britain as a staging area, the, the great difficulty that it would have been invading Europe later on in the war. So that's a, a great example of how radar really made a difference in World War II. Das ist der Radio Jerewan, das ist Radio Jerewan. Wir listen to Radio Jerewan. Ja, ihr hört den Radio Jerewan. Heute machen wir ja einen Kurs in Radar. Today we do a workshop, a lecture about radar. And it's quite clear, we mentioned that before already. Our teacher did say this is a three days course for understanding radar. And in fact, If you go through all these three days of the lecture, you are at least at the same level like any US administrative person should be. To understand how functioning, uh, how radar is functioning and how it is working and how to even deal with. Also, wir machen ja jetzt einen Drei-Tages-Kurs, der, uh, der, der die Lecture da gibt, die die, die Anleitung, den Kurs, äh, hat es ja schon gesagt, drei Tage. Wir haben jetzt einfach den Radiokorrex übernommen und die nächsten drei Tage gibt es jetzt die Geschichte, wie der Radar funktioniert, wie man es macht, wie man damit umgeht äh, und so weiter. Und damit haben Sie, habt ihr dann natürlich auch im Grunde genau dieselben Möglichkeiten wie jede Person, die in der US-Administration tätig ist und tätig war und tätig sein wird. Es ist praktisch. Also rund um und um sind Sie dann Experten. Einfach drei Tage weiter Radio hören. An Radio Korax, Radio Jerewan. Das ist doch eine Aussicht, oder? Und dann gibt es eine Klasse von Radar, die Instrumentation Radars, die sehr und präzise messen die Charakteristiken von Targets. A number of these are located on, in Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands of the ones I've shown you. Uh, uh, this particular radar uh, has, I think, uh, oh, seven or eight hundred thousand pounds it is. It's, a, it's a, just huge. It's so big that it has railroad tracks that it rotates on. And here is the facility at Millstone Hill, uh, the Haystack radar and the uh, Haystack Auxiliary Radar out on Millstone Hill, and there's a 120-foot dish uh, antenna similar to this under the radome, and that emits radiation at just three centimeters. And that building an antenna that precisely is just is a quite a feat, 120 feet across, and you have to keep it to be a parabola to a tenth of a wavelength or a tenth of three centimeters. So an engineering marvel to build that radar is way back when it was built. Okay, so now we're down to the basics. What is radar and how does it work? Well, uh, here we see a visualization of an antenna. And uh, behind it, of course, is a transmitter and a receiver in a, in a, a, a building, or a shed, or whatever. Uh, and that antenna will take the emissions, the microwave emissions, from the transmitter, and a pulse of energy will be transmitted. It will go out and it will propagate through the atmosphere, and then it will impinge on a target. And here we see visualized a, an aircraft. And that target will then scatter some of the energy back to the radar, where a switch will turn off the, uh, uh, the transmitter and earlier it did after the pulse, and listen for echoes. And that echo, the reflected pulse, will be sensed by the radar, and from the delay time of going out and back, one can measure the range from where the antenna is pointing. You can measure the azimuth and elevation of the target's angles. From the size of the echo, its amplitude, you can measure the target's size, its so-called radar cross-section. We'll get to what that is in a bit. And also from looking at the frequency of the radiation, uh, the shift in the frequency of the radiation that comes back, you can measure the speed of the target, and also other features with processing such as imaging. And the words radar come from radio detection and ranging. Uh, the, the acronym, these words were used initially when radars were developed, when people uh, were dealing more with radio frequencies, 
and they didn't really want to say microwave detection, microwave electromagnetic wave detection and ranging. Okay. Now, what part of the... I've been alluding to the fact that these are electromagnetic waves that we're transmitting. And I want to I want to let you know what part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we're dealing with. And here we have a, uh, a, a table with some visualizations, that's courtesy of Berkeley National Laboratory, which break up into, it's a logarithmic scale, it breaks up into, each one of these units is a factor of 10 in wavelength, and there's uh, something that tells you how big it is, like 10 to the minus 1, and this is in meters, that's the size of a baseball. And radio waves are very long waves, say that. They're the size of houses and soccer fields. Uh, and then when we get down to very, very short waves, we are dealing with like uh, a water molecule size waves, x-rays, gamma rays, and in here are visible waves. And the wavelengths are a millionth of a meter, so-called, you know, a thousand angstroms. So very, very short. Microwaves are right here in the middle, and, and radio radar frequencies operate in the microwave region, and some radars a little bit down in what's known as the very high frequency, ultra high frequency, and high frequency region, but pretty much in this region here, where we're dealing with wavelengths that typically are about an inch to maybe as tall as a human being. That's generally ballpark, what the, the, the radiation that today's radars. There are some radars that operate in the millimeter wave region, and there are some radars that operate up in uh, 10 meters, 10 meter wavelength region. But most of them, the sizes are down in here. And these correspond to certain frequencies. I'm going to show you how the frequency and the wavelength are related in a minute uh, through the speed of light. But these frequencies correspond to uh, uh, 10 million up to 10 billion cycles per second, or waves per second, periods per second. And you'll hear the words gigahertz and megahertz, and I'm going to show, tell you what those acronyms mean in a minute if you're not familiar. Okay. So what are the properties of waves? Every wave has a wavelength. And what does that mean? Here we have a, a simple periodic wave. It's a sine wave. And it's if you were looking at a, a wave rippling along on a brook, you know, if you dropped a pebble in and see that wave go out, there's a peak and a trough. And the distance between the two peaks is the wavelength. That's called a period. And the distance is a wavelength. The time it takes if we to watch that peak, go to the next peak, is the period of the wave. And one over that period is the frequency, the number of peaks per second that, you, that go by. And they're related through this formula, that the frequency of the wave is equal to its speed. And since we're talking about electromagnetic waves, which travel at the speed of light, it's the speed of light divided by the wavelength in meters. Now, the speed of light is very fast. That's 3 times 10 to the 8th, or 1 and 8 zeros meters per second. That's 300 million meters in a second. And in our normal units, it's a, we deal with feet and miles. It's 186,000 miles per second. Okay? Now, for the wavelengths that we're talking about, these are frequencies that this corresponds to. So a 3 gigahertz radar, which that, an air traffic control radar would have the one I showed you, the wavelength is 10 centimeters. Okay? Uh, and these, the, these show you the correspondence, and they're just related through this formula. Okay. The next concept I want to bring about is phase. You can see that there was that up and down periodicity and you can measure the phase of one wave relative to another by looking at where one peak is relative to the other. In this case, we have two waves that are offset by 90 degrees. So we call that a 90-degree phase offset. And the algebraic expression for this wave is its height or amplitude 
times the sine of the phase angle. The phase angle over a period goes from 0 to 360 degrees, 0 to 2 pi. Okay? For engineers, they think I'm going too slow. Lawyers are barely remembering this from their trigonometry, probably. Anyway, uh, and we see down here, this would be the algebraic expression. This is going to be very important, that difference in phase, because sometimes if I add the two waves together, it's important what the phase is, one relative to the other, whether they add constructively and reinforce or destructively. Now this talks about that constructive or destructive addition of two waves. In the upper left, we have the uh, constructive addition of two waves. The peak matches the time of the peaks here, and we come out with a wave which is twice the height and the same frequency. If the waves are out of phase by 180 degrees, the peak of one will correspond to the the trough of the other. If this is plus A, that's minus A. Add them together, you get zero. You come here at the zero point, the zero will add with the zero. So when two waves are out of phase by 180 degrees and you add them, you get zero output. If they're partially in phase, we have partially constructive, we'll get an, an answer for the addition in between. Now what we have, if we have just random noise that's coming out, they'll add together and they'll be a partial because they, they're not in phase because the co non-coherent noise just doesn't have coherence at all to it. It's the sort of the addition of a whole bunch of random coherent signals. It, and, but the randomness is in the phase. And when you add them together, you'll get some addition and it will be in between, but it isn't as much as you can't get the full coherent addition from non-coherent signals, which is what this tells you. Now here we have an example of, I want to go back there, of, of the concept of polarization. To describe polarization, I have to describe to you what an electromagnetic wave is and how it's generated, and that takes a minute. And right after that, we're going to take a break. Um, an electromagnetic wave is generated in the simplest form by taking an electric charge and accelerating it up and down. If you accelerate a charge, you get an electric field that varies with time. And that, that, an accelerating charge is a current that's changing. And that current that's changing generates a magnetic field. And Maxwell, in the late uh, 1800s, figured out how this all ties together mathematically with a set of equations which really describe electromagnetism. Okay? These are called Maxwell's equations. And with Maxwell's equations, that's the mathematical description. And what that, that says, basically, is that when you have an accelerating charge, you generate an electromagnetic wave. And the energy that's transmitted in that electromagnetic wave comes from the charge, the moving charge going up and down. And in the simplest terms, that's how you generate electromagnetic waves. Now, the polarization is the orientation of the electric field vector. Okay? I want to go back. And here you see an electromagnetic wave propagating out in this Z direction. And you see that the E field, the electromagnetic field up here, is vertical. It's going up and down. And that's referred to as vertical polarization, when the electric field is up and down. If it was an electromagnetic field that came from accelerating the charge horizontally, the electric field would be moving back and forth horizontally, and that's called horizontal polarization. And you can make, we'll, we'll go later when we talk about antennas, we'll talk about other kinds of polarization. Here's an example of the electric field for when it's vertically polarized, the wave is, and here the horizontal polarization example. We went over how electromagnetic waves are propagated. They consist of an electric field and a magnetic field, 
at located right angles one to the other and the direction of propagation of the electromagnetic beam is perpendicular to those two vectors and here you see a little movie, a visualization of the propagation of an electromagnetic wave. We also introduced the concept of polarization of vertical and horizontal polarization where vertical polarization is when the electric field moves up and down vertically and horizontal polarization when the electric field vector of the electromagnetic wave moves horizontally. Okay. Now let's continue. Okay. The radar bands over that region uh, from one say up to about, excuse me, you can see here uh, above the wavelength and frequency for the whole region of the electromagnetic spectrum from wavelengths of one kilometer down to one nanometer that's a uh, a thousandth of a millionth of a meter a billionth of a meter and from a frequency of one megahertz just up to uh, uh, over a mi million million hertz okay way past the visible spectrum in this area from here to here is the portion of the electromagnetic spectrum that radar operates at. Okay, and here we have it blown up down here. It's roughly we're blowing up the region from 1 to 12 gigahertz and we have some other frequency bands that are notated by these letters that are up in the 16, 35, and 95 gigahertz region. Now, the areas that are colored are the portions of the electromagnetic spectrum that are allocated for use in radar, for, for use of radar. These allocations are made by the International Telecommunications Union, and th these allocations are made so that one usage doesn't e in, uh, of the electromagnetic spectrum doesn't interfere with another usage. And historically, for a long period of time, radar has operated in these bands. In the early days of radar, these bands were given letter nomenclature. Uh, L band being at about 1.25, centered at 1.25 gigahertz. You can see here up in the, from 3 to th 3.7 or 8 gigahertz, the S band region and C band is about five and a half gigahertz and X band up in the nine, uh, eight and a half to ten and a half gigahertz region. And here are the wavelengths that those bands correspond to. So the, the radars, when you hear someone say, and if you get used to it, uh, working with radars and radar people, they'll say that radar operates in the X band region. And pretty quickly you learn that the the wavelength is about three centimeters and it's up in this nine to nine to ten gigahertz range and five and a half to um, centimeters and five and a half gigahertz is where C band is and roughly S bands around three gigahertz with ten centimeters and L band is about 1.2 to 1.3 just in general ballpark terms and 23 centimeters is the number I seem to have remembered and UHF um, is at uh, is at 435 megahertz, and VHF is uh, uh, down lower in frequency. Okay, and these correspond to to different um, wavelengths. Okay, now the IEEE is the Institute of Electric Electrical and Electronic Engineers, and they have a a set of radar standard bands and the uh, in the in that set of standard bands um, th these nomenclature are used for the letter standard for radars that operate in these particular frequency ranges the typical usage of radars uh, that do search as their main and only mission are down at lower frequencies. And missile seekers 
which are would be radars that operate on missiles, and missiles have rather small diameters that you're going to need antennas that are very small. They in turn, and you'll see why, uh, need to operate at much higher frequencies. And radars that do both search and tracking functions would tend to operate in this regime. And then tracking and fire control radars would operate at these uh, frequencies where you'd be able to get higher resolution. And you'll see later on uh, why the, the, these uh, they have the higher resolution. Easier, it's easier to obtain at those frequencies. Now, this view graph is probably one of the the, the view graphs that, if nothing else in the course, you'll end up remembering this view graph because you're going to see it an awful lot. It's a block diagram of how a rate of the different functions performed by a radar and how the radar works. You can describe it in pretty simple terms how it works. And it breaks down the functions, the different functions of the different parts of the radar. We call them subsystems. You consider the radar as a system as a whole. It's got a lot of little subsystems. And uh, we'd just like to follow you through what happens when you, say, turn on a radar and send out a pulse. The first thing you do is you have to generate a waveform and then amplify it in the transmitter and then it goes to a switch where uh, that allows the energy, the pulse of microwave energy to go out to the antenna but none to leak into the receiver but that it goes out to the antenna and the antenna directs the energy towards the area in space that you'd like to illuminate with microwave energy to look and see if there's a target there. The pulse will then go out into the propagating medium, the air, the atmosphere, and um, and when it hits a target, some of the energy will uh, be reflected off that target, and the amount of the energy will de depend on the effective electromagnetic size that the electromagnetic uh, wave sees. Uh, that's called the radar cross-section, and that energy will come back a small portion of it to the to the antenna. In the meantime, the transmitter has been turned off since right after the pulse was transmitted, and the and the receiver is listening for echoes. Okay, the farther out the target is, the longer it's going to take for the pulse to go out and the echo to come back. And so the the, the delay time before the echo from a target is received is a measure of how far the radar is from the target. So that antenna collects that very small energy in the millionths of a watt and then it goes into the receiver and then because processing of that data to optimize the ability to detect the target it is much much easier to do digitally and reliably to do digitally th that echo is uh, transformed from the analog or continuous domain to the digital domain with an analog to digital converter and those samples from the analog to digital converter sampled at each little moment of time in range or in time delay then go into a signal processor where the target uh, echo is processed to get the best resolution you can out of that received pulse, a process called pulse compression, to optimally process the data and also to look and see if the frequency of the return echo has been shifted and if it has, and we'll get in a minute to what that means, you'll be able to t measure directly the velocity of the target, you know, separate it from un unwanted uh, backgrounds. So we'll also do in the signal processor the process called signal processing. Then the data will go into, this digital data will go into a detection process where we'll look and see what targets are higher than a threshold size, which ones we should say are, which echoes are, aha, that's probably a target. And then we'll go into a process called tracking and parameter estimation where we'll keep track from one set of pulses to another of targets, detections, and correlate them from one scan of the radar to another, one set of pulses, so that we can say that indeed this set of 
detections at these different times are all from the same actual physical entity out in space and get a really good estimate of the range and bearing and velocity and motion of that target. And then that data is displayed on a console, uh, a digital display usually these days, and also the data is recorded so that we can understand later what's been going on with the radar. Now all of these different boxes are very important and the rest of the course what we're going to be doing after this introductory lecture is focusing on each of these different pieces of the radar one at a time. Now let's go over that point, the radar equation, just for a moment. Uh, here we, for this example we have a, a radar located on a ship and it, the two key parameters that tell you how, how your ability to see targets are your power and your aperture. You know, the aperture is the size of the antenna, its diameter, and the transmit power. The more power you've got, great. And the bigger your aperture, the more you'll be able to focus that energy to hit a target, you know, or to collect it to receive the, the uh, reflected echo. So we transmit a pulse out, uh, it, we've got a target here with a, a radar cross-section cross sigma and then we have a distance from the radar to the target. Now, what in rough terms, how much energy do we get back given all these properties? Okay, first, we've got, you know, you're going to get more received energy back if you increase the radar power. So we've got a term in there, the transmit power. And then we've got another term, which is the gain of the transmitting antenna, which is 4 pi a over lambda squared, is the gain of that antenna. That's how much the directivity you get over isotropic. And then we have a spreading factor. That is because as the energy goes out, it drops off, the, uh, the energy density drops off as 1 over r squared, and that ha has to be factored in. And then all throughout this process of transmitting, hitting the target, and receiving, there are a set of losses, things which are inefficiencies in the radar that are just, I call it the humanity of the radar, that you lose energy when you go from the physical transmitter to the antenna because you send that energy through waveguides and the waveguide as the energy goes through it heats up a little bit and you lose some energy. There's going to be energy loss in the attenuation in the atmosphere. There's going to be uh, all kinds of different losses and we'll get into them later in detail when we study the radar equation. But you have to you know divide by those losses to find out that receiving energy. Then uh, the greater the cross-section of the target, the more power that will be received, so that's a multiply. And then for the, there's another spread factor of 1 over r squared, because the reflected echo is going to be sent back to the radar. And it's going to, that you'll have that energy density of the echo is going to spread out. Okay? And then the bigger your antenna, the bigger your antenna will be able to receive that energy. So there's another factor a. And then the longer you listen, you're able to listen for the target, the more power you'll get in your receiver. So these are all the components that go and come into play to say how much received energy we get. We're going to spend the whole lecture on this radar, on the radar equation in yeah, general. Ganz speziell der Lange, especially Lange, did uh, have a good uh, argumentation. He, he, he really had one. Also, besonders der Langer hat uns jetzt argumentativ überzeugt und hat gesagt, na, wenn ihr jetzt drei Tage Radiären Radar auf dem Radio Korax macht, dann wollen die Leute später nichts mehr vom Radar hören. Und da haben wir gesagt, Langer, du hast recht. Yes, we did say Langer, you are right. If we do really three days full of radar, nobody else want to hear again about radar. So we do stop now. It was Radio Yerevan, das war der Radio Yerevan. And next time 
we will come back with another perspective to Radar. Ja, nächstes Mal gibt es was anderes über den Radar. Bleibt dran, lassen Sie es eingeschaltet, das Radio. Und dann bis zum nächsten Mal. Für euch, macht es gut. <lacht>